Welcome to Latin American Intersections, where we explore the intersection of business, geopolitics, and social impact in the Latin American and Caribbean region. Our team is here to bring you the insights you need on current events from leaders and experts in the public, private, academic, and civic sectors. Latin American Intersections is presented by Ozilold Group, a consultancy focused on stakeholder relations and alternative risk reduction, building collaborations across sectors and industries to improve outcomes for clients and communities. Please keep in mind that the opinions, ideas, and information discussed on this podcast are those of the individual host and guest and do not necessarily reflect the official stances of organizations they are affiliated with. Be sure to follow at LATAM Podcast on your social media, share an episode or two with your friends, and send us your questions about the region. And don't forget to rate us on any of your favorite podcast apps. Today on Latin American Intersections, we have the unique opportunity to delve deep into Costa Rica's successful integration of renewable energy technologies, where in 2017, Costa Rica produced 98% of its electricity without fossil fuels. Here to help us explore the challenges, successes, and future of Costa Rican energy and the investments, partnerships, and policies that made it all possible is Luis Guillermo Solis Rivera, President of Costa Rica from 2014 to 2018. Mr. President. <laughs> Thank you very much, Michael. Very happy to be here. Uh, let me just say, during the President's time in office, according to the Costa Rican Electricity Institute, or ICE, ICE uh, only 1.47% of electricity was produced from fossil fuels. For 1,197 days, the country's energy needs were met exclusively by renewables with 14 new plants being added to the grid, including seven wind turbine plants, six hydroelectric plants, and just one solar plant, with just under 75% of renewable energy coming from hydroelectric plants, just under 12% from geothermal technology, which is very interesting, which I hope we're gonna delve deep into, um, over 11% from wind power, and less than 1% from biomass with only 0.03% coming from solar power. So the big questions today are going to be things like, how did Costa Rica achieve the success it has with renewables? Where does the investment in the country's renewables infrastructure come from? What are the challenges that Costa Rica now faces as it moves to phase out the use of fossil fuels in the transportation sector? And what opportunities to grow with these initiatives might exist at the intersection of the private, public, civic, and academic sectors? So let's find out with President Solis. Thank you. Well, let me just say by introduction that um, we have had a policy of renewable energy production since the early 1960s. And this was, uh, I think, uh, the foresight of our, uh, uh, of our leaders who understood very clearly from the onset of the Second Republic, which was refounded after the Civil War, the last one we had in 1948, that electricity as well as water supply was as basic to the country's future as democracy. 
in a in a in a in a very broad sense. So the importance of water security as much as energy. Absolutely, and that brought up the question of uh, uh, hydroelectric uh, production, and our first plants uh, of hydroelectric uh, production were created in in 1959 and 1960s. They were designed in the late 1950s and became and were constructed in the early 1960s, and that allowed the country to take gigantic steps ahead of many others in the production of this energy that was that became the the core and the axis uh, that allowed Costa Rica to industrialize earlier and to have a very high quality renewable uh, energy matrix from very very uh, early in its contemporary history excellent so this was the late 1940s when Costa Rica decided to um, uh, abolish its military, if I'm correct. That's correct. Which was a major step in freeing up the type of um, funds and revenue in order to reinvest in infrastructure, education, education health. health. Um, and so you started off with an emphasis on hydroelectric uh, energy at the time. Yes, actually uh, drinking water was very important. In fact, our first policies to protect the sources of water were developed in the 1880s, uh, so that was at wow. the turn of the of the century. President Bernardo Soto uh, preserved all the aquifers ma uh, reserves in the high mountains in the valley surrounding San Jose, the capital city of the country. So you know there has been this concern for for water for and and preserving water in, at a given point in time was combined with produ producing electricity because you had the water dams uh, that had to accompany the electricity plants. And that became, well, these are huge batteries, as you can imagine. I mean, having yeah. a dam operate as a reservoir of energy, which is later turned into electricity in, in, by the turbines in a, in a, in a, in, in a, a machine room. So we, we've been involved with this kind of logic for you know, more than 60 years now. And it is indeed very impressive you know, for a small country and underdeveloped country in Latin America. It's very impressive. When was one of the first shifts towards other types of renewables, such as wind or geothermal? Energy? Well, that's much later, uh, but it was probably already coming in the 1970s, um, mainly because in the, in the 1970s, uh, both Presidents Figueres and Oduber uh, began this development of preserves and, and conservation areas and national parks that became a trademark of the country for decades to come and included in the uh, national park category were all or most of our vol volcanoes and it was obvious for the volcanologists and people who studied the, 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 the possibilities of, of uh, energy pr uh, development in the country that volcanoes could be a very good source for geothermal. So we began uh, exploring geothermal through the ICE, ICE, or Institute of uh, Electricity, and very soon we started making uh, pilot projects that turn into very important projects today. I mean, it's uh, geothermal is the second source of uh, energy production in, in in the country this time. So it's uh, I would say in the in the 1970s, but. Uh, Hydroelectric production just overshadowed everything else, right. and uh, so it did not boomed. Actually, the production of geothermal electricity or energy up until the 1990s. 
Okay. And during that time, did you get more, more or most of your intellectual capital and geothermal from Japan? Japan was uh, always there uh, at the forefront of uh, the resource uh, provisions. They have a very old experience. Uh, they, they are experts in the production in the uh, in the production of, of machinery uh, and of knowledge regarding geothermal. So it was it has been mainly Japan that provided the the resources for the exploitation of geothermal in Costa Rica. Yes. That's excellent. And, um, and that brings up another point I wanted to ask. And which countries are the primary investors in renewables in Costa Rica? Well, I would say that the United States and, and Spain, probably. Um, there are other projects that have been undertaken by companies coming from different countries. And in the you know globalized economy, you don't know where the companies come from these days. You know they're right. transnationals; they come up. The, 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 generally, the problem that these companies have had coming into Costa Rica has been for that for many many years, ESA was a monopoly. The production of and distribution of electricity was a monopoly in 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 the country. So they couldn't come because there was no business to to, to be carried out. Um, in uh, the late 1990s. The monopoly was opened, and it's now uh, there is a cap for the production of private sources, uh, around 30% of the total. It's it's that's the limit for private production, uh, and there's a lot of pressure to open up the market completely. But there's been a tremendous resistance, which I myself uh, supported, of not allowing ESA to drop because the experience has been, and we always think of the Californian bad example, that once the state company goes, then in a small market, such as the Costa Rican market, 5.5 million people, right. a company, a private company can become another ESIP, but of a private condition, imposing the country what we had before 1948, which was a, a detestable... I can think of a few examples around here as well. <laughs> a, a, detestable, a detestable system in which we could not uh, do anything with, with the cost, and that was imposed on the country by one company. So we have this... Um, resistance and, and, and pressure uh, contradiction that has not been solved. And so the investors that have voiced uh, their concern and or their interest in, in producing energy, for example, solar energy, which we could produce in enormous quantities because of the location of the country, have not come out as readily as they could have. Is there anything else holding back uh, the development of solar power in Costa Rica? Well, according to ICE, uh, and again, ICE is not ICE, uh, ICE <laughs> is ICE, <laughs> Costa Rican in, in Institute of Electricity, which also handles telecommunications and other things. Um, the production of, of uh, solar is fine, but solar is not a firm energy. That is how they call it. I don't know if it's the concept in English, energias firmes in Spanish. That means that the, unless you use that uh, energy and you put it into some kind of battery, which are now being developed by Tesla and other companies in the United States, you lose that possibility to, to use that energy significantly. Okay? There's no way to, to hold the energy, to put it somewhere. Where with hydroelectric, you can ramp up or ramp down Exactly, production. using the, the dams, whereas you can do that. And so it's being, not, being, not being firm enough. Uh, you can use it for domestic purposes, yes, and you can even sell part of that 
firm, uh, unfirm energy into the grid, but then you degrade the grid. In other words, you inject, inject energy that's not strong enough to withstand the necessities of a national, of a national system. So apparently there are technical as well as political reasons not to do it. My position has been we have to go ahead with, with solar, not only because we can produce it and it can be very cheaply produced. Now the panels are very, very cheap. In the past they were very expensive. Now, nowadays that's not the case. But also because the ESE itself has, um, has told the country that in the current weather conditions, uh, world over, with climate change uh, over us, the availability of water in the rivers that feed the dams that eventually are used to produce electricity um, has diminished or will diminish significantly. And therefore, we have to have an alternative. And if we're going to have an alternative, it's better to have solar or to have uh, geothermal or whatever kind of electricity other than a fossil fuel and uh, energy production. Let me ask you this. Has there been um, any measurable decrease in available water already? Oh, yes, very much so. Uh, in fact, I think it was five or six years ago, we had to uh, build two important um, facilities for the production of uh, fossil f fuels, uh, l largely using bunker as... Uh, as the, the, the material to produce that fuel. And it has, it, it has been very, now those plants are basically there, sitting there, and we only keep them because we know this could happen again, and we don't want to go through the process of, of electricity scarcity. So you do still have a fossil fuel backup oh, to yes. the you have to have a backup. renewable energy yes. mix. And you have to have a backup because it can happen anytime. You know, I just, well, God forbid it happens, but if there's a big earthquake, and we are susceptible to earthquakes in Costa Rica, or part of the rim of fire of the Pacific, and the one dam, one dam is one of the important ones, is, is destroyed somehow. Mm -hmm. Well, that or some of your geothermal plants as or well. Or geothermal plants, if, uh, as we've had the problem lately with um, volcanic eruptions, if that's disrupted and we cannot produce energy then the country enters into a crisis. So we have to keep the backups. That's, that's so with this energy mix, you have a lot of redundancy anyway built into this, this yes. concept. And uh, it's a very sophisticated grid. Uh, we now have uh, redundant installations for the uh, handling of our electricity grid in at least two or three places in the country. And I visited them, and they are like bunker type with, uh, you know, first-class technology, very well secured, all sorts of uh, firewalls and things to prevent hack uh, hackers to getting into them. I know it has become a very sophisticated business. Very sophisticated system. Um, let's move into what Costa Rica is doing about a transportation sector. Which is our headache. Which is the headache. And that's, um, according to uh, The Guardian, the transportation sector is not only still fossil fuel dependent, but if we add that to energy consumption uh, patterns in Costa Rica, it reduces the use of renewable energy down to about a quarter of the nation's total energy use mm -hmm. if we account for vehicles and the fossil fuel yeah, that's used atrocious. with them. It's, the numbers are atrocious. Absolutely. And only 2% 
of vehicles are uh, electric or hybrid in the country. So what are some of the policies that began during your administration that are being um, continued by the current administration under Carlos Alvarado um, as president in the country? Well, a number of things. Well, first of all, we opened up to civil society uh, and academics. Because, you, know, you mean engagement? Engagement uh, of people, younger people, organizations, organizations of, uh, of uh, uh, citizens who are concerned, uh, who are very, very uh, committed, but are also very knowledgeable about uh, how to uh, reorganize uh, the, plan the urban planning. And so we got in to that dialogue. So you I kind of invited in the climate and environmental evangelists, yes, as it were. Yes, uh, and we work very well together. Monica Raja is always a, a reference because he's ver she's very well known in academic circles. Uh, For those who don't know, Monica Araya uh, has a relatively, uh, I want to say famous, um, a, a relatively well-viewed TED talk on Costa Rica's renewable uh, sector. Yeah. Just uh, just a point of reference if anybody wants to look that up. It's it's she's fantastic, but but she's only one of a number of leaders in the civil society organizations that have been invited to come with very new ideas. Um, I appointed a vice minister of transportation who comes from there, uh, and uh, she did a wonderful job. Because what are the kinds of things we're doing? Well, first we're thinking in the your urban planning, we have to have the bus routes the car routes integrated with bicycles, with uh, a fast train. Real electric. quick, what's the percent of Costa Rica's population that lives in the capital? Oh, half of it. Well, that, At least 50 in the capital, correct? In the capital and the four cities that are within the central plateau, uh, the capital and three others, uh, the half of the country is there. Okay. So if, if you want to tap into the problem, you have to deal with whatever's happening in those four cities. So we have to have uh, better planning, um, we have to have more integration of the different kinds of massive transportation systems which are completely uh, operating on their own. We're now in the process of developing a fast urban train that will cover the distance between one extreme of the valley to the other, around 90 kilometers. Note um, on that, that was highlighted in some of my reading as an initiative from the First Lady's office. Do First Ladies in Costa Rica, they, they take these kinds of initiatives? And, no, and that was my, says my, my partner who did it, but, but she was more interested in, in local development okay. rather than the train. the train. The train disappeared. Costa Rica had one of the normal train systems that most countries in Latin America developed at the end of the 19th century. Basically, to yeah. transport bananas <laughs> from the cap from the um, uh, banana lands to the ports, and and then we had one going to the Pacific and another train going to the to the Atlantic to the Caribbean Sea, and uh, but that disappeared in the 1990s. It was a political decision to get rid of the train, supposedly because it was not um, sufficiently um, what's the word? Um, it was then making money, okay. Yeah. It was not making money, which is a very absurd uh, claim because, you know, trains continue to be the uh, pipeline of a lot of development for many, many countries, including right. the large ones. So we're trying to bring it back with this new format. And uh, the first phase of that grid, of that uh, railroad, is already in the making. So this administration will start it. It, will, it may finish the first start, the first 
a few kilometers of the of the network uh, of the that, system. That first face of it is that in the city then? In the city. So yeah. that's the Which urban is going train. To, it's going to even now with the old because we have already started to work with the old 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 train. We have been refurbishing it and and we pushed it very much in my administration with a new logic with with a different kind of uh, of pattern so that it would be more useful. So we're making more urban planning, the train, we are, uh, and I, I, I enacted a law with the support of Congress, obviously, to facilitate buying electric cars. Uh, that includes the possibility of um, cashbacks for, uh, for ca cars that are um, old and run with traditional fuels. So, so the country is providing significant, or will provide significant um, incentive for people to, to yes. phase out their own vehicles. Same thing with buses. We are uh, in, uh, convincing the private sector to invest in, in buses run with gas instead of uh, other kinds of fuels. Uh, we, are, we are already beginning to think of hydrogen-run buses. Our, our astronaut, the only astronaut we have, Franklin Chang, who is developing for NASA the engine, the um, plasma engine for the um, for the vessel that will take the first astronauts to Mars. Oh wow! Is working with hydrogen in his plant in Costa Rica. So there are a number of initiatives uh, that deal with the question of how to reduce the footprint of cars and, and mobile transportation in the country. That's excellent. Um, just a quick factoid here. I think one of the, the policy, specific policy um, decisions was that uh, I think 10% 10, 10 of transportation owned by the state must be electric by a certain time period. Yes, and we also agreed that by 2021 we were going to have uh, a carbon-free society. I don't think that's going to happen, right. but it, we're going to get close. I mean, there is a push to get Costa Rica to the point where we can be liberated from 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 uh, uh, the uh, fossil fuel consumption. So let's go into just just briefly touch sort of wrap up the challenges that are faced when phasing out these vehicles? What are some of the, what, you, what have you been confronted with as your primary challenge to phasing out fossil fuel vehicles as part of this uh, 2021 goal? Well, there's the culture. You know, unfortunately, we became enticed by the U.S.-led um, tradition, not tradition, uh, initiative of suburbanization in the 1950s. We left Thanks, the, suburbia. Exactly. <laughs> we, we, we left the city centers, like in Europe. People live in the capitals or live in the cities right. and went away to the suburbs. And that generated the need for cars, Absolutely. obviously, and for, for, trans, for, for, rail, uh, for uh, roads. And, and so the uh, idea of collective transportation means was significantly diminished. It, it takes a lot of effort to convince a Costa Rican who's very proud of renewable energies, who's very proud about you know, the idea that we are a world example in energy production, all of that, to get rid of the car and start using the buses. I mean, uh, this is not to say that buses are not used. Two million Costa, Rica, Costa Ricans use the bus to go to work and back from work every day. So 
That's almost half the population of the country moving in buses, but that's still not enough. And when we've had problems that have required people to use the train as an alternative, for example, the building of a bridge that had collapsed the city because there was the only entrance to the city had to do with that bridge, as uh, we were very successful with buses and the train to deal with the issue, and then when the bridge was completed, people went back to the cars, to, use the, to using the cars, which was, doesn't make any sense. So culture is one. Mm-hmm. The resistance, for example, of shop owners in business to allow for the reorganization of transportation in the cities. I mean, they want mm-hmm. to park the car in front of the store, even if, that, if doing that uh, makes a big traffic jam. We want to get rid of the cars in the middle of, street, of, the, of the cities and put them in garages somewhere. Well, uh, there's a tremendous resistance because people are used to go shopping and put the car in the, in the sidewalk almost. So, you know, there's a resistance on the part of business. Uh, there has been a resistance on the part of the owners of certain mass transportation systems, particularly right. buses, who were not controlled in terms of the... Uh, um, income they got so that's over now we are now they they seem to have understood that we have because all of this is regulated by by the state somehow I mean the, the bus the public transportation in Costa Rica is a is a regular state regulated affair but serviced by the private sector but it's serviced by the private sector. But their licenses are renewed every renewed seven years. And, and there has been problems And that's when with you can that. build in the and mandates. Been, yes, and there's been okay. also another big challenge has been corruption uh, in, in the middle ranks of the administration. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, having to issue those licenses sometimes, sometimes become a tremendously complicated, cumbersome process. And quite a racket. And quite a racket. Uh, so there, there's been a number of, uh, of uh, challenges to be overcome, and we've done that gradually. I think uh, it's the, the, the problem at the very end, Michael, is that you either have a good transportation system or life sucks, okay? <laughs> because if you don't move around, if you don't have the capacity to get from point A to point B fast enough, efficiently, and on time, mm-hmm. then your life becomes miserable. And, it, and business becomes very difficult as well. So, at the same time, some of us absolutely hate driving and yet yes, are stuck having to you use the vehicle have, for, absolutely. for efficiency. Yes. Um, just a quick note on that. Is, is the price of gas in any way inhibiting people? And I ask this because Costa Rica has had a moratorium on its own oil exploration or exploration by any entity for oil in the country going back at least 15 years. Yes, and I, re, I, I, I uh, refreshed that moratorium. And there's a lot of criticism. People think that we should go um, uh, and start drilling for oil and fracking for gas and things like that, which, of course, uh, I absolutely objected uh, because the, the cost-benefit ratio was absurd for a country that's uh, a world leader in eco- ecological tourism, for example. Do you see the current administration being able to enshrine that in law instead of renewing it? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. And I don't think the administration is going to uh, pay too much attention to passing a law, which in Costa Rica is very cumbersome. It's very difficult. You need 38 votes out of 57 to do that. And the country, as it is the case in the United States and elsewhere, is very divided. Uh, at this point, so it might as well just. But for the most part, culturally very it. protective of 
their ecotourism and yes, and but that, there are increasing pressures uh, on certain quarters, political quarters, to open up at least maybe not to petroleum exploitation because that's in Costa Rica to talk about petroleum is to almost to talk like uh, is, is almost as bad as talking about petroleum uh, about weapons and and the military (laughs) but but there is a significant growing group of individuals insisting that we should open up for gas exploration uh, via fracking which would be the only way to do it in in Costa Rica apparently so um, a couple of big questions now so uh, the the rest of um, the media is discussing a lot of the immigration issues in Central America and some of the violence and turmoil that has led to things like the caravan that's in the news currently. Um, I think one of the things I want to ask, especially in regards to all this development renewables, and I think we've touched on this a little bit, what sets Costa Rica apart in the Central American region specifically, and more broadly in Latin America, as a country that's surrounded by turmoil and yet able to thrive and progress um, in this kind of development compared to the rest of the region, uh, Central America, Latin America, and even in comparison to larger countries like the U.S.? I guess the short answer to that would be the commitment of administrations in the, the last 70 years. There's been a lot of continuity, yes. A lot of continuity upon around surrounding the idea of human development. In other words, we have insisted very much uh, through the welfare state, which was the model that was adopted after the revolution or the civil war in 1948. Now, before to, we go on, yeah. just in 30 seconds, can you describe a welfare state for our um, American listeners? Just because mm-hmm. for... You know, here when you mention the welfare state, there's a there's a sort of image that's conjured up. But what do you mean when you describe that? Well, interestingly enough, it must be very close to the American mind because it was copied from what FDR did in the 1930s and 40s. It was a it's a welfare state is a state that's strong. It's a regulatory regulatory state that 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 puts limits to to the private private initiative. And a lot of people may object to that in current times, but it's it's a state that puts the the person, the, the citizen, first. It just surrounds that person with access to public, good quality public services. Let's put it that way. Okay. Including health services. In the case of Costa Rica, that includes a very sophisticated, some people say uh, inefficient, I say it's top of the class, uh, social security service. Okay. Which is which is public, so we have public access to uh, health services, all of them, and and it's not free; it's paid, but it's paid on a trap tripartite basis by the person, the state, and the employee. And despite employer, this, I'm sorry. And despite this emphasis on human welfare, this in no way inhibits uh, foreign direct investment or oh, no. local investment, or no. it, it allows for businesses to thrive. Businesses and, and, yes. and capitalism, businesses thrive. Our uh, growth has been, you know, not gigantic, but it has been, you know, from four to two and a half percent through time. We are very close to the Perhaps United more States. more sustainable. It's more sustainable. People are happier. They are better fed. Uh, generally, they don't. It's, that's why we have more Americans living in Costa Rica than Costa Ricans living in the United States. Costa Ricans tend not to migrate. 
if they can choose, they stay home. Or they study abroad and go back. They will study abroad. My own children, I have two, two uh, out of six, I have two that have studied in the United States so far. Both went back. They had excellent grades. They could have stayed here. One's a lawyer. The other one is a, a physicist, physicist, and they could have stayed. They went back home. They are not interested in staying here. Uh, but we have been investing in public education for 150 years. <clears throat> and that only increased after the 1940s. So we've had, yeah, uh, the Constitution in Costa Rica mandates that as much as 8% of our GDP, not of the, of the budget, but of the gross div- uh, of the GDP, um, should be invested in education, public education, from kindergarten to the university. Can you say that number one more time for me? Seven, uh, the 8%. Okay. Just to give you an idea, China is up to 4% of their GDP expenditures. Sweden spends 7% of their GDP. Now, I'm not saying that our education is better than Sweden's, and the big challenge is to improve the quality of our education. So the amount of money you invest is not necessarily uh, the measure of the quality of an educational system, but it gives you an idea of the commitment that the elites of the country have had. So what's the end result of that? We have a, a labor force which is recognized as one of the most, if not the most talented working force in Latin America. Very and educated. It's I very mean. educated. It's very sophisticated. So the reason why we have the highest uh, investment records in Latin America at a time when foreign direct investment is contracting is because of the talented workforce we have. That's true. And even with foreign direct investment, um, your universities produce a lot of the local talent that either foreign direct investors or local investors need for, say, these renewable projects, yes? So much so that some of these investors actually finance programs at these universities so they can have tailor-made programs for their business. This is being done, for example, in medical devices uh, uh, in several of the country's public universities. And, and we are, again, a capitalist society. I mean, this is not a socialist uh, model or anything to that regard. Now, we are in the midst of a very horrible... Uh, I mean, is it fair to call discussion. it a hybrid economy, basically? Not even that. I would say it's an open economy mm-hmm. uh, with a strong state, which, by the way, is the case in the United States. I mean, I'm, uh, now that I'm a newcomer again, in the sense that, that I'm back, and I have to go through getting a license, a driver's license, getting a bank account, getting a house rented, buying a car, a number of things. Everything's regulated. So give me a break when they say that there's social... I mean, come on, this is the most socialist country I've ever seen in terms of norms. And, yes. and, and you, in terms I, of regulations. Regulations. In my neighborhood, I cannot cut a tree without a permit from the from the city uh, government, uh, and I cannot just park whenever I want. So it's the same kind of, kind of model. Costa Rica resembles in its public administration system more the developed countries in, 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 in Western Europe or the United States than the Latin American countries, that we, which is the family we belong to. And this had to do with this idea of the welfare state developed by Figueres and 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 his uh, and the other presidents in the 1950s and 60s, informed by FDR, and policies. which was yes, which is a logic. It came from Britain, from from uh, in the in the in the uh, years of the Second World War. Excellent. Um, 
so we've touched on uh, foreign direct investment. I'm glad you brought up um, the universities and in Costa Rica and how you have this financing from foreign direct investors. But um, one of the things I want to touch on, what kind of investment is Costa Rica, did Costa Rica receive during your administration and what kind of investment is Costa Rica getting for renewables and the subsequent infrastructure necessary for it and research and development uh, now under President Carlos Alvarado as compared to when you started this initiative, when Costa Rica started this initiative back in 2014? Well, again, I think that foreign direct investment or invest investments in general in renewable energies are scarce or scarcer as compared to investments we are getting in uh, medical devices, services, lots of back office uh, investments, um, even even in the traditional fields of agriculture, investments for the production of pineapples or the exports of coffee or whatever. And again, that has to do with the tap we have on, on the, 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 the relatively low ceiling for private production of, of energy. And I, uh, I did not recall any significant investments in anything other than wind uh, production, which developed developed quite intensively during my uh, my, my 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 four years. Uh, even when I do not remember visiting any of those projects uh, to inaugurate those projects, as I did with other projects in in in, in free zones, for example, uh, where we had a massive massive development of, of, for example, medical device production. At, at this time, uh, at the end of 2018, the largest export sector is sophisticated medical devices, which is very interesting. Uh, and tourism, which is, remains a very important uh, part of our economy. Well, and in many ways, your renewables uh, play into that... Uh, the, the, the marketing of ecotourism, as it were. Yes, absolutely. But the largest investment in renewables in Central America, not only in Costa Rica, was inaugurated under my term, although it started a few years before, by ICE, which is the uh, Reventazón River Dam, uh, which is was at the time when it was built, and, and we inaugurated it in 2016, if I'm not mistaken. It was the second largest public works in Central America, other than the Can Panama Canal. And that's a that's a huge, uh, and it's probably one of, is going to be one of the last huge uh, electric dam projects that we will have in the country. It's amazing. Jumping to geothermal for a moment. So uh, ICE, again, the Costa Rican Electricity Institute, uh, is supposed to, is by 2019, is supposed to add an additional geothermal plant uh, called Las Pailas. Las Pailas, yes. Right, Las Pailas Dos, Dos, which is supposed to be the most modern geothermal plant in the world or in Costa Rica? No, it's probably in Costa Rica or in Central America, maybe even Latin America, but not the world, okay. no, no. What's the cost of that project? just to get a ballpark? I, I don't know, because the project has been built in stages. And so the the last stage, which I presided You know what? Upon, I think we need to back up a moment. In mm -hmm. just 30 seconds, let's describe what geothermal energy is. Well, geothermal energy is energy produced with 
the steam that comes out if from volcanoes, and that steam is uh, becomes it's used to heat water and produced uh, through turbines. It's a description. And in a place like Maybe Costa Rica, where you have a lot of volcanic activity, yes. and other countries around the region, exactly that this actually is. is and a it's a very it's of an extraordinarily firm energy. So this is the kind of energy that the, the engineers like because it's very reliable. You have it at hand 24-7. You can control it a bit because you can close down or open up the valves to allow it to come or go. Uh, so it's, it's very, and it's completely renewable because once you have the, the water uh, coming out of the turbine, you inject it again into the volcano and, and so nothing's lost. So it's just perpetual. It's, it's almost like perpetual it, energy. It's almost <laughs> as perpetual energy, unless the, 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 the volcano dries out, which it has happened. It has happened. Oh, really? Yeah, it okay. happens every once in a while. <laughs> uh, but geothermal, uh, the, the last uh, loan we got from Japan for Las Pailas Dos was $400 million. And I think it had been there were one or two previous um, loans of the same amount. Uh, in geothermal energy, Japan has been the large, largest uh, supporter of our of our industry. So they provide a lot of the intellectual capital as well as the actual capital for yes, some of uh, these projects. Now the intellectual capital is limited because we have developed our own and we have among, uh, some of the best technicians in the world. Uh, I mean, it sounds like you have a whole generation that's being brought up in this sector. Yeah, and the Japanese have been you know, great masters uh, of this generation, which became their disciples in the 1980s and 90s. And, and we have people going to Japan and study there, and we have technicians from Japan coming to Costa Rica. So, <coughs> but the largest investments in geothermal, <coughs> I'm sorry, energy at this time come from uh, Iceland. Oh wow, but and but that's in their own geothermal yeah, energy, not in yeah. Costa Rica, and, correct? Oh, so much so that they're producing energy and selling it to Europe. Wow, they, they bring <laughs> no, it down from in, their uh, island. That's amazing. <coughs> yes. Uh, so I guess that leads into the next question here, and that is, what kind of investment might foster more rapid growth of the renewable sector and the adoption of clean technologies for transportation? Basically. Um, I kind of want to speak to the business community here or give you a chance to sort of make the pitch as to what kind of investment opportunities there are in the region and especially in Costa Rica in the transportation sector and in the renewable sector in general. Well, I, I would, again, I think that the biggest, in terms of production of energy, the biggest issue here is whether ICE, ICE is going to um, withstand higher levels of competition and if the lawmakers will increase <coughs> the percentage of production um, of energy from 30 to 40 to 50 whatever percent if that's the case and it opens up then I think a lot of companies are going to rush into Costa Rica trying to uh, take advantage of our uh, of our stability uh, political stability and the geographic location of the country to produce especially solar energy. Because it's a market that's there to be exploited. It's Absolutely. not a huge market, but it's there. The other question is whether well, we're going to be able to... Side note on that, yeah. do you foresee China or the U.S. being a primary driver in that in the solar market? Uh, probably not China, but probably the U.S., maybe Europe, Canada. 
some Canadian enterprises have voiced that interest. The other thing is, will, will, be, will we be able to solve the connectivity issues that prevent Costa Rica from exporting significant amounts of energy to other countries in northern or southern Latin America? At this point, we have uh, the, the access to these grids, these regional grids, is uh, being limited by uh, insufficient conditions for the transportation of energy in Panama and in Nicaragua. And we've been working on this local uh, system of transportation of energy for How over 30 Nicaragua years. How do Nicaragua and Panama compare to your other neighbors, El Salvador, Guatemala? Well, you know, 50% of El Salvador's uh, energy is produced by river, by, by, by hydro. Uh, most of Nicaragua's energy is produced by fossil technologies. Guatemala is now using fossil as well because they have discovered uh, some important coal mines and so they have dropped the cost of production to two cents per kilowatt hour, so that's very, very cheap. So how much energy does Costa Rica actually export to these countries currently? No, currently it's very, it's very small. I mean, the, the possibility of exporting would have to go to other countries like Colombia, Mexico, uh, Panama is uh, trying to upgrade their own system, which is all private in the case of Panama. So it's very diverse. And we have a, a, a regional administrator that operates, I think, from Nicaragua or El Salvador, I don't remember now, that uh, looks at this project as part of the integration project. Now, uh, that is a second challenge. And the other thing is, I would see a lot of interest in companies that would be willing to develop uh, to develop um, infrastructure. Uh, we are going to. We have already started the process to have a new, a second international airport that will be built in the central Pacific of the country. That is going to be a three-phase project that will end if everything goes according to schedule in 2049. It is going to be a, an investment of around $2.5 billion. Where's most of that, that money coming from right now, currently? It's No, it's not coming from anywhere yeah. because we're just in the stages. We've all, in my administration, finished the master plan for the airport. Okay, so now they're in the process of making designs and all of that. This was by, done by um, a British firm. Uh, but this would entail building a road, a railroad, and a number of facilities that will allow this airport to be connected to San Jose, which is around 45, 50 kilometers away from the airport. Now, if that is seen as part of a larger ecosystem where you have the airport, the port of Punta Arenas, the port of Caldera, uh, the facilities uh, in, in Guanacaste, in Liberia, uh, and you start thinking uh, of the airport as the hub of a larger uh, vision, which is how I like to see it. Then investments in order to bring forth um, more energy, like the train, for example, could be very interesting. Because we're talking here of investments that run into the billions of dollars. Because now you're connecting the, the, the train country, the to train. the... Yeah, yeah, and with, with China in Panama, which is now a member of the... Uh, which which uh, Panama has opened diplomatic, diplomatic relations with China, they have voiced their interest in investing in 19 strategic projects in Panama. That includes, one of them includes a train that will connect Costa Rica and Panama, an electric train. Nice. 
So if that's the case, the Chinese are likely to be involved in that. But that's down the road. I mean, we're talking here uh, of a process that in the case of the first phase of the Costa Rican Second International Airport will not be completed, again, if it runs on schedule, until 2029, the first phase. Wow. It's 10 years. That's a lot of planning. But you have a lot of continuity in your administrations and in yeah. your... Your well, government. It's, it's that that project has been de defined as a as a as a of national interest. So that will go on regardless of who's in power. That's good to know. Um, just any other opportunities that lie for the private sector at the intersection of civic, academic, and the public sector in Costa Rica that you can think of off the top of your head? Well, one of the things I I insisted a lot, and we created a, a, a the framework for a law that will eventually be approved, and I hope it will be soon, and it probably happen in this administration, if they're wise, and they push it, is a law for uh, public and private partnerships. I find that the uh, formalization of that intersection, which you talk about, is fundamental. We, do, we didn't have a law. Now we do have the uh, outlines of that law turn into a decree that I signed in developing these partnerships, which I find essential for the kind of projects that energy-related production entails. When was this decree signed? In 2000, I think it was 2016. Okay. And has that invited additional investment or yes, larger institutional investment? Absolutely. And, and okay. I think that that plus uh, the respect for the rule of law, which Costa Rica is well known for, uh, plus the fact that we now have a in fact, it was opened on Friday, last Friday, end of October, we're talking of end of October, the first port, world-class port we have, a container port, that's an investment right there in the first stage of a billion dollars, uh, which is now operative. All of that, I think, will form a sort of a, a climate of attractive possibilities for investors throughout the world. And kind of an out-there question, but which... Well, actually, let me back up for a second, and that is, as far as the U.S. is concerned, as an investor, back in 2015, you met briefly with President Obama, um, and citing to him, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, Costa Rica's success with renewables and requesting some technical assistance from the U.S. Could you tell us what came of that, and what the future of that could be, as far as the U.S. relationship with Costa Rica is concerned and renewables? Well, the the request was for the United States to look into it more detail in more detail because the U.S. has been supporting Costa Rica and, and, and natural resource conservation for decades. Yeah. We are not recipients of U.S. support you know, um, anymore because we are supposed to be more developed and so the, all the cooperation we have, which is amazing, especially just, compared to the rest of the region. Yeah, but, it's, <laughs> but still, you know, we are we have lots of limitations, but uh, not in projects. I think uh, the United States insisted in in the fact into the, the fact that we that the the, the cap on on uh, uh, private privately produced electricity is hurting the possibility of more investments uh, from from the U.S. So I, I think again, you know, the the more significant, most most significant uh, issue with regards to investments from the United States or anywhere else will be if they feel that uh, 
they have to f make that cap more flexible. Let's put it mm -hmm. that way. And in conversation earlier, you mentioned that most of the um, institutional investors, organizations that are investing in Costa Rica are medium size organizations. I think so. Although, you know, I, I don't, I'm not a specialist in the field, so I don't quite un identify these uh, organizations. Maybe if you look at charts that, uh, that um, the uh, CINDE, Costa Rican uh, Investment Promotion Agency have in their page, maybe in their in their web page, you will be able to recognize some of the names. I simply don't know, but but my impression is that we don't have these huge world companies interested in Costa Rica because it's a very small market. Yeah. I mean, you ought to think that the whole Central America, the whole Central America, uh, in size is smaller than Texas, and the GDP of the whole Central America is probably as large or a little less than Miami Dade's GDP, you know, because it's it's a very small place. Well, and to be so, fair, though, can, when we take that the size of Central America as a whole, and especially as Costa Rica, the size within, of Costa Rica itself within that, considering the the leaps and bounds that Costa Rica has made specifically within the renewable sector, I mean, I, I find that very significant, considering how small. Costa Rica is, and yet how much it's been able to achieve within that framework. Yeah, yeah, we have to think that this, all of this has happened in the last 60 years. I mean, and, and I remember that... That's a I, very short period of time to make I, that much happen. When I met with... Uh, and right on the back of a civil war, if I remember correctly. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Remember when I, I, I met with, uh, with Chancellor Angela Merkel in, in Brussels uh, three years ago, four years ago, I remember telling her, that I was going to brag with my about my country in two things: education and energy. At the time, as you know, Germany is trying to get rid of its dependency on nuclear energy and turn it into solar and other kinds of energies. Right. I said, "Come on, we've done our homework, you know, 60 years earlier than you." Uh, I guess this is why some people refer to Costa Rica as the Switzerland of Latin America. Yeah, well, yeah, but I don't like that comparison. <laughs> I, just, I knew uh, you didn't. I, 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 we, we tend to be too cocky sometimes in Costa Rica about our successes, but but the the overall idea of a small nation like ours with uh, such a tremendous vision on energy uh, developing so early on is something that uh, needs to be stressed. I think it's it's reasonable, it's fair to say that, that we need to, to be very proud of that. Now, uh, is that up to the times? Are, is, is ESA going to be able to to keep the pace of technology and the availability of resources to do what it has been doing, uh, reducing the cost of electricity. And one of the most constant uh, criticisms uh, from the private sector in, in, in Costa Rican productivity had to do with the cost of electricity, which according to them is very high. And it is very high. I mean, it's not higher than in other countries of the developed world, but when you compare with 2% or 3, I mean, 2 cents or 3 cents, a kilowatt hour in Guatemala cannot compete uh, simply because we, we our production costs result from the very careful caring of the energy producing mechanisms and also because ICE uh, does thing not necessarily related to the production of electricity dealing with community development etc in the areas where they mm -hmm. operate so well know, and to be fair it seems that 
in these projects, the social impact to the local oh. at the local regional level is always taken into account. It's fundamental. It's fundamental. But Absolutely. you know, we have to also we have to talk about that because I, um, it, one of the things that I liked that I, I enjoyed the most being president for was a decree that that I issued that would impede ICE to build uh, dams in two rivers that we want to maintain pristine. Mm. One going towards the Caribbean, the Sabe, the uh, uh, Bacuare River, and another one going to the Pacific Sea, the Savegre River. And we want them pristine because Ise has gotten everywhere with dams. I mean, there are rivers in Costa Rica that have seven dams, some private and some Ise plants, which have destroyed the rivers. Ah. Just as it, they destroyed the rivers here, you know, the Hoover Dam and the, this dam and the other dam, the salmon could not go upstream, uh, the silt that was deposited in the, in the, in the river, and the, in the, um, what do you call it, in the dam, um, made the river less fertile for other kinds of life. Uh, so you have problems in the Colorado River and the, well, whatever. So there is a question of whether we want to keep on building dams, which could be very renewable, but are also hurting the environment. Correct. So th that discussion is there. And, and uh, for all of my support to ICE, and, and I am convinced that we ought to keep the, the, uh, the institution <coughs> to, to in some way limit the access of uh, heartless energy-producing <laughs> en uh, companies. I have to admit that sometimes they have prevented the development of other forms of electricity-producing um, technologies, including solar, which we will need in the future. Mm -hmm. So there is a discussion of whether, I mean, how far do we take the conservation argument? How far do we take the uh, state uh, interest over private interest argument, how far we take right. it in order to deal with the future needs of the Costa Rica. Well, it economy. comes down to opportunity cost too. What is private investment going to bring exactly. in exchange for this sort of deregulation or demonopolizing of the industry through a state entity like ICE? Now, do you, what, you know, let me, let me have you pull out your crystal ball, especially since you know him. Uh, what do you, see as President's, uh, President Alvarado's goals in regards to that exact uh, subject? No, he tends, to, I, I, we, we belong to the same political party, although he is ruling in a very complicated coalition mm -hmm. with our adversaries that were, that resulted from the conditions of now, the so last I know, election. what is an, what, political adversaries in Costa Rica probably is a little different than what many of us envision as political adversaries. Right. Well, not, but it's it's interesting because you know for many many decades we as the United States were ruled by a almost perfectly bipartisan system mm -hmm. in which two blocks of parties uh, came from power and out of power and and and, and blended uh, the administration one party after the other one with only a few uh, exceptions. In the case of President Alvarado, after he inherited my administration f for the first time uh, belonging to our party but he required the support in second round of these other adversaries the, the traditional blocks part of parts of, of the traditional blocks that are now 
ruling with him. Mm-hmm. So it's a, like almost like a French cohabitation, you know, okay. where you have a very big blend, and there are sectors that are very much anti-conservationist within the traditional logic of the parties that are now allied to President Alvarado. But for the most part, there's consensus. But on there him. is consensus, and I don't think that my party and his party will allow him to uh, relinquish to the interest of these other parties. Uh, I think the environmental policy is going to be even stronger than my than mine, because I, I was always very... Well, he's brought in even more. He's relatively young himself, correct? 38, he's 39. 39. And you said earlier that under your administration, you're bringing a lot of relatively young people into this space to discuss and promote and develop the renewable sector, as it were, and I'm, and I'm assuming intersecting sectors. Um, and has he continued that sort of new tradition of bringing in some? Well, interestingly enough, not as much. Uh, we don't. He doesn't have as many younger young people than I did. I have around three hundred very young operatives in different, including himself, because he was my minister. By young, we mean people in their thirties. I'm assuming in the thirties. Yeah, yeah. Le- less than forty. Let's put it that way. Okay. Uh, but but in the environmental area, and I would include energy within the environment mm-hmm. for practical purposes. In Costa Rica, you have to. It's not in the Ministry of Economics or Finance, but in the environment. Uh, he will be very, very progressive. Sorry, everyone. We're back again. Had a quick uh, no, technical I, I difficulty, but go ahead. That the President Alvarado will, will be even more environmentalist than I was. And uh, he will keep the policy on petroleum. He was going to keep the pro- policy on gas. He has voiced his objection to retreating in terms of fisheries, which I thought for, for social reasons needed to be flexibilized. Uh, so he's going to be more involved in, in, in keeping the, the commitments the country has had in the uh, conservation. And therefore, I don't think that energy is going to vary other than to increase the importance it has in the overall proposals of the government. It's basically a lot of continuation and expansion of what uh, began under your administration and also what was continued previous to that. Absolutely. And in this case, the First Lady is also involved, and she uh, is very much interested in urban planning. She's an architect. So I think she's going to... She's very involved with the urban train, correct? That's what I read. Yes, she is. Mm -hmm. The urban train initiative. Well, that is a lot of information for our audience to digest. And um, I think one of the last things I want to do is uh, discuss just briefly anything that you want to plug in here. Basically, this is the moment where um, our guests have an opportunity to uh, bring out a shameless plug. <laughs> is there any? Do you have any shameless plugs for us today? No, well, what I would like to say is that Costa Rica is far from perfect, and most of our policies which were successful in the past have been challenged in the, in the past few years. We have become a more uh, uh, fragmented, fragmented society, unequal society. Mm-hmm. Uh, the state that worked very well, it's now eating itself. Uh, the growth of the state apparatus is, uh, has um, been uh, simply too, too much with regards mm-hmm. to the resources we can invest in it. It has become bureaucratized, it's much less efficient, etc. So I don't want to sound apologetic uh, in the sense 
uh, not apologetic, uh, exaggerated in the sense that this is a country that sh whose, whose model should be replicated and followed or anything. Uh, much of the, I'm very critical and I like to point at those uh, areas that are weak because this is the only way to improve them. But in the production of energy and in general, in the handling of the energy question, I think that there is a case to be made in favor of Costa Rica. And uh, mm. uh, what I like of these opportunities is to um, put forth uh, a number of elements that uh, could be and should be uh, understood uh, in the in the no, in the new wor world context, because they're they're best practices uh, well, to be to be to be uh, studied and analyzed. Even despite some of the cons, as it were, like the you know the prices of energy in Costa Rica, the fact is is you created a relatively successful and sustainable model in the country um, that can be adapted, I think, to other areas, especially in Central America. I mean, where you have also a number of small countries that um, could probably benefit from, from similar policies in the future. I mean, obviously, there's a lot, of, um, a lot of other issues that many countries in Central America have to address, but I think that Costa Rica obviously stands out as a model in well, if, if you look at ICE, for example, ICE mm -hmm. could not be created now. In, in, in 2018, there's no way you can create an ICE. It would be prevented from all sides. It's, it goes contrary to the current of history because it's a regulatory agency in a strategic area, which is energy, um, and uh, it's extremely large. Uh, it's not... Uh, efficient in many ways. It has a lot of employees. I mean, it, if, if you look at it, it doesn't make any sense. In fact, one of the reasons uh, Costa Rica has been fighting a lot at the OECD in, in, in Paris to get admitted to the OECD is the way it handled its um, uh, state enterprises. I mean, the water, the, the, the electricity, etc. We have uh, the, the health care. I mean, for me, as a Costa Rican scholar looking at the health issue in the United States, I find it inhuman. Mm. I find it attentatory against human rights. Absolutely. And, and therefore, because that's not the way I see things. I mean, we have a social security that resembles Canada's or Western Europe's, where people have access to it. I, I cannot imagine the costs. It's, it's just overwhelming to think the costs of, of health in the United States. I mean, it's the biggest business around. I mean, you only look. It only takes to look at the ads and on TV. Everything has to do with health, pastillas of all sorts, treatments of all sorts for different uh, ill uh, uh, diseases that are privately run, with enormous costs for the lesser uh, affluent populations. Well, we're talking enormous profits with uh, in Huge. regards to insurance as well as pharmaceuticals. But that's that is a whole nother discussion. It's a, it's a, it's a discussion. Well, that, just as that is the case with Social Security, it's the case right. with ISE. That's how it, that's how big ISE is in Costa Rica. I see. It's it's a publicly funded enterprise, state enterprise. Uh, and a lot of people would like to get rid of ISE and open up the energy market and have everybody come and produce energy of all sorts. And then my fear again is we're going to have California. And you have another monopoly. And then we have sorts. a private monopoly with high prices, destructive of the environment, and you know we won't have any electricity. So would you say there's a happy medium between what yes. ICE is now and what it could be in regards to the yes. private sector? Yes, and we have been 
we 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 are we have been progressing along that road, the sense of uh, start working with the unions in ESE. There are several of them uh, in ESE, trying to tell them, listen, you have to you know we have to be reasonable here. We cannot keep on milking down this cow until we kill it. <laughs> you know we have to be we have to move on to new technologies. You cannot expect ESE to keep on building dams forever. Correct. That's that's not the way the world is going to. Well, and with so many other exciting technologies to choose from oh, at this point, it's including uh, oxygen. Incl- I mean, uh, yes, ox- uh, hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I hydrogen uh, producing technologies. We should get into a different logic altogether, and that's going to cha- take uh, some years. And it's uh, an institutional culture that will have Absolutely. to evolve. And so you know. There is From a, a security standpoint, approach. I have to say that, uh, you know, especially speaking in regards to things like food security, water security, energy security, in a region that has uh, the potential for a number of natural disasters, as well as is going to feel even more the impact of climate change uh, over the next couple of decades, I think Costa Rica is doing the right thing by having multiple redundancies in its energy mix. Mm. I mean, it's, it sounds like it's going to get to the point eventually where you may have energy independence for, you know, any given household or group of households at some point, which I think uh, helps to mitigate uh, things like disaster risk. Um, so that, I think, is a, is a proud point as well, is that, you know, when something bad does happen or, you know, any number of things go wrong that you as a country have no control over, then at least your energy sector should or seems to be at the point where you're going to have enough of a of a, enough redundancy to not um, feel as much the impact of some of those potential risks. No, and again, you know, I think we, we sometimes get very excited with new technologies like uh, solar energy production and redistribution and the household benefits that it entails, which I find is, you know, wonderful, etc. But, but it's it's not a miracle uh, solution either. I mean, if you don't have batteries uh, mm. that are enough to uh, storage the energy, to storage to st- uh, storage facilities to to keep the energy once it's produced, then it's negligible. Which, and to be fair, is very difficult to scale up to I mean, a, a grid, yeah. right? As compared to say an individual household. Absolutely. Um, so now. Going back to shameless plugs, uh, what I'm referring to is do you have anything that you want to advertise about, say, your work here at FIU? And for anybody that doesn't know, uh, we are extremely lucky in Florida and South Florida to have President Solis now as a professor at Florida International University working with the Latin America and Caribbean Center. That is the Kimberly Green Latin American Caribbean Center. Um, so, I, I mean... In, in my mind, you're probably one of the uh, one of the resources that we really need to highlight here. So, what are you working on at this point with um, with FIU, for instance? Well, I'm working on on several fronts. One's academic. I'm preparing a course for next semester. I'm going to be here a year, so it was fall semester and spring semester. Are these undergraduate? Yeah, uh, undergraduate. No, they're graduate. Graduate. graduate so course. very lucky graduates we have here at, so at FIU. It's, and it's going to be on Central American contemporary politics. I'm also uh, working on a draft, um, on a draft um, outline of what I hope will be a, a book on my campaign, the campaign that made me president. 
somebody else should work eventually on what I did as a president, but I, I'm particularly interested in the rupturist nature of my campaign, uh, how it became... Uh, <laughs> I didn't want to bring any of that up for this discussion, maybe in a was, future one. <laughs> that was it's interesting, so I'm working on that. Um, I'm also doing a lot of PR for the center. I think the Latin American Caribbean Center here, the Green Latin American Caribbean Center at FIU, is a, it's a wonderful um, and very reputed and well uh, sought of uh, center of specialized center, a Title VI center on Latin America, which I think is very important. So I might be a bit biased, but I concur. <laughs> and, uh, and I think uh, you know, having the opportunity to lecture to the university community, to the community at large, mm-hmm. on the issues, current issues like the crisis in Nicaragua or the um, immigration issue, the caravan, as it's called uh, recently. And you're a very frequent Venezuela speaker at any number of panels and conferences that so, uh, you know, have taken I, place I, lately. I like that. And then uh, I'm also um, preparing um, uh, a, a second edition of a book I wrote with my Professor Mark Rosenberg uh, on uh, U.S.-Latin American relations. So I, I mean, Dr. Rosenberg is the president of the university at this time. He was not the president when we wrote the book. But I think it's time for a rerun and to rethink what has occurred uh, in, in Central America and in its relations with the United States over the past 13 years, because it was published in 2005. So, you know, uh, I'm busy. I'm keeping busy. Very happy. <laughs> so, quick side question. What kind, of, um, what kind of experience do you think, you know, so-called academics bring to the table in politics? Well, I think it's very. It makes a lot of sense. And we will have a much longer discussion about this on another episode. Yeah, we already had a, a discussion with uh, Mr. Dr. Mora, the director of, of LAC, the other day, um, regarding the convenience of this. It's 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 in Latin America. It's just, when an academic goes to politics, then he becomes immediately a suspect of the worst kind of. <laughs> I remember saying some of your family was not too thrilled that you even got into politics yeah, at all. Well, probably so. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the 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 I find it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, an academic in politics becomes a um, or being an academic in politics allows you to become more systematic in the analysis of things. Mm-hmm. You can associate things in a more comprehensive way. Um, you look at things. In my case, I'm a historian. So we, you, you look at things trying not to repeat the errors of the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a political scientist, I always have the possibility of looking at innovative ways for changing that. Um, and coming back out of, the, of, of, of politics into academia then makes us more realistic in the kinds of things um, we, we propose. Ah, excellent. Uh, I don't, so I it was don't, a learning process just being involved oh, in yes, politics. Oh, yes, of course, because you know, I was a newcomer in, in politics in many ways. Yes, I had been the secretary general of one of the traditional blocs that I, I, I resigned from because of corruption. But I, I was never uh, truly aware of the um, nuances of power. Now I have a better perspective of these things, how, process, how decisions are made, how... Uh, interpersonal relations function in politics, what are the red lines you should never cross, uh, some of which I had very clear from my upbringing, but some others whom I, I learned as I, as I became a more mature political leader. So um, I, um, I think it's, it's very positive Absolutely. In, bo- on both, in both ways.
Now, here at FIU, I don't feel like there's very many, at least in my experience, because I am an, uh, an alumni and um, or alumnus or however you say it. Um, in my experience, FIU has a lot of very experienced academics, experienced in very uh, real world. Re- they have a lot of real world experience, especially mm-hmm. in business and in politics and the civic sector and uh, any number of areas that they happen to be teaching on. However, I guess I kind of wonder how much um, are your fellow academics leaning on you to understand your experiences, as you put it, with power and the reality of policy making and decisions in regards to all these intersecting and competing institutions and organizations? Well, it, it can become challenging, but you know, I, uh, it's, it's funny because when, I, when I'm in politics, I uh, treasure my academic background and my academic contacts because they keep me um, tied, grounded, to, to grounded to, to reality. Okay? And I, 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 I say it often: you keep me with my hair, with my head clear, particularly because politics can become a very despicable profession. You know, very detached. And, uh, in you some of my government relations, I've noticed people are very detached from reality. The reality, and you became yeah. crazy with all sorts of things. But then, when I come to to academia, I feel somehow that I'm in a in a bubble, in a in a in a, in a uh, ivory tower, looking at the world with no responsibility whatsoever. You know, I'm just <laughs> so I say to my political friends, "You keep me grounded." Because you know the in, when you when you have the privilege of working at the university, you're looking at things and analyzing things and saying things about things, without no responsibility whatsoever. I mean, it just shoot and forget kind yeah. of thing, and it's a recurrent attitude that I see in many academics. I know my problem is not transforming society. That's your problem. My 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 obligation is to think about society and be you know a free spirit in de- saying whatever. <laughs> I can. Well, that's very valuable, and I can I can appreciate. And that hopefully, very much. there's decision makers listening, listening to what you to have to, to say, say, which is not always. But the it's case. very fun. It's very easy to criticize and to say how things ought to be done, and not realizing what that actually what the processes is, are is involved are in the processes mm-hmm. and the difficulties, and why it is sometimes difficult to do some of these things they propose. We propose. But at any rate, I think it's a it's a two way street, and it's a very it's a very uh, valuable two way street. Excellent, President Solis. This has been an amazing discussion. Thank you. And I expect that we're going to have many more of them. I'm going to track you down. <laughs> <laughs> I do have that tendency to uh, track down some of the best people, Thank and you. I hope we can have many more discussions on a number of subjects uh, in regards to the region. And even in regards to you and your experiences, your personal yes, experiences. Absolutely. No, and, and uh, I, I hope that I'll be always available. I, I decided from the onset that I would not run again ever for any elected <laughs> office. So I. Uh, but it sounds like you left some good people in charge for the yes, most part. I hope so. Thank you, <laughs> President Lee. Thank you, and to our audience, have a good afternoon. Thank you for listening to Latin American Intersections. If you enjoy our podcast or find it insightful please be sure to share with your friends and colleagues. Hasta la próxima. See you next time.
A big thank you to Kasim Sultan of Sad Boy Music, who is working diligently to improve our audio as we develop our production techniques. Sad Boy Music offers competitive rates for recording, editing, mixing, mastering, music production, video editing, and motion graphic design. You can follow Sad Boy Music on social media at 5ADB0iMusic.